Thanks for being here this morning. It's back to church Sunday. Uh, maybe that sounds like a marketing ploy to you. It is. We just want people to be back in the house of the Lord. And so we just used that and said, hey, you're starting routines in school and work and vacations are over. And so, hey, come back and join the family of believers. And I mean, we, we think it's, it's important to do this. And otherwise, I mean, we're all just wasting our time. But to uplift our voices to the one who created us to sing his praises and make much of his name. We just enjoy doing that together. So thanks for being here this morning. Um, we're going to start a new series in the book of James <clears throat> this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, that's where we'll be in James chapter 1. <clears throat> but uh, before we do that, I, I did want to just kind of tee this up as to where we're headed and, and what we'll cover. And whether you're new to church or not, maybe you've been in church for a while, uh, or maybe this is your first time, <clears throat> maybe you have no faith at all, or maybe you've had a lot of faith throughout the course of your life, I think that the truth of the matter is that we all have faith in something. And so maybe, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe it's not in Jesus, maybe your faith is in something different, but maybe it's in yourself, maybe it's in your circumstances, maybe it's in your job, maybe it's in your sports team that will play later this afternoon, but we all have faith or confidence in something. And so uh, the question that we're gonna pose over the next five weeks is, is my faith working? Is my faith working? And if you know anything about the book of James, you know that James has a lot to say about faith and works, um, but I, I think you'll be surprised at what he has to say about faith and works and how it may be um, different than maybe you've viewed faith and works before. And so is my faith working? What is my faith producing? And maybe even as I ask that question, you would say, well, my faith is producing a lot of things. I go to church on a regular basis, and I read my Bible eight times a week, and I pray three times a day, and I fast once a month. And, and that would be your idea of what your faith is producing. Because, I mean, we know the lights are working because of what they produce, and so the question then becomes, is our faith working? What is it producing? And yet I think we live in a day and age and in a culture where we've gotten it confused as to what the Lord expects of us. I read a story this week about a lady named Beverly. And Beverly had grown up in the church, right? She was a pastor's kid and had uh, read the Bible and memorized all the verses and uh, had prayed a prayer at eight and uh, got into a relationship and married a pastor and had just checked all the boxes. And, and yet she found herself questioning whether she was truly saved. And maybe you found yourself in a similar place where Beverly would come home and her husband and her kids would be at the grocery store and she would just begin to question, did the rapture occur? Like maybe I got left behind and, <clears throat> and they got taken away and, and I'm left here. And that was the fear that she had in spite of the fact that she had checked all of the boxes, that she looked like a Christian. And so like, that's, that's kind of the, the thesis, if you will, of kind of this whole series is like, what are we doing if, if all we're doing is doing things? Does that make sense? Like, if all your faith is doing is just producing things, then I think we've lost sight of what the Lord asks of us, and we'll see that this morning. And so we'll be in the book of James uh, together. And again, if you know anything about James, you know he has quite a bit to say about faith and works. I, I read a quote this week as well. It was shocking to me that um, it was these young people, like young teenagers, and these teenagers were pitting themselves against one another, and they were trying to determine who had spent the most amount of time in the Bible app, in the YouVersion Bible app, which again, inherently is not a bad thing. Like, I think it's great to spend time in the Bible, but then the, the quote of one of these teens really caught me off guard when they said, hey, yeah, I tell you what, like Jimmy down there, he listens to a lot of messages, 
And, and we all know that a sermon a day keeps the devil away, and so he must be really spiritual. And, and I remember thinking, man, like we've so lost focus of what the Lord asks of us, and we're robbing ourselves of intimacy spent with him because we think that just by consuming Christian content, we're saved. And that's certainly not the case. If you came here this morning and you think my words are gonna save you, that's the furthest thing from the truth. You have access to the word of God. You have access to the Father himself. And that veil's been torn. And so it just caught me off guard, but it reminded me of just the culture that we live in. That even in the Christian culture that we live in, it's about doing things. Am I doing enough things? Am I checking enough boxes? And I think it's handcuffed us as believers in Christ Jesus. And so... Um, I, I, think, I think the starting place for us, though, before we can answer this question, is my faith working? What is my faith producing? I, I think we have to have a right understanding of how God works. Does that make sense? So, so the question this morning is, like, how does God work? And what's the expectation that God has for you? Because y- your faith will never produce anything if you have a misunderstanding of the way the Creator works. So we'll look at that this morning. How does, how does God work? And is, is that the way God works, that he's transactional in, in his nature? If you do X, you will get Y from him. Is that the way he works? Or does he work a different way? And so, again, we'll, we'll start in James, but I think it's important for us to kind of backtrack for a second because what's, what's laid out in the book of James is really two teams pitted against each other, if you will. And so to speak to that, I want to take you back to the very beginning, to Genesis 1 through 3. You know the story You know the way the account goes. But what I want to highlight this morning is why you were created. Again, how does God work? And so what is he doing with his creation? And so we see him creating in chapter one, and you probably know the phrase that's repeated, time in and time out. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. And so his nature, his character is good, and he's bringing forth good simply because of who he is. And you could ask yourself the question, how come no one else got to define what was good? Well, because no one else was there. He was with himself, the Trinity, by themselves. He didn't create you because he was lonely. He didn't create you because he needed you. He created you because he defines what's good. And out of his character and his nature, it pours out onto the canvas of creation. And so he declares what's good and what's right. And then we see in chapter three that when the fruit is eaten, there's an interesting phrase, it says, their eyes were opened. And you think they were just like fumbling around blind in chapter one, just couldn't, and then their eyes were open. It's not the way it works. What happened was Satan has a different definition of what's good and right. And it's opposed to what the Lord defines as good and right. And so he tempts Eve, Eve eats of the fruit, gives to her husband, and in a moment, man begins to define for himself what is good and right. That's what happens in the fall. But in our day and age, in our culture, we take that a step further. And what's happened to us today is not only are we defining what's good and right, but we've now made God into our own image. And so maybe you've heard phrases like this before. Yeah, I would never worship a God who would condemn people to hell. Or I would would never worship a God who's not accepting of all people. Just live your life. He's loving, he's accepting. I would never worship a God who would be opposed to me in any way. You see how that's self-idolatry. We've created God in our image and now we're worshiping God in accordance with the image that we created. 
And so that's what's happened from the beginning of time. It's no different in our day and age and in our culture. We do it day in and day out. We redefine what's good and right. Instead of submitting to what's good and right in the eyes of the Lord, we have our own definition. And so that's what's happening in the book of James. You're gonna get two mentalities pitted against one another. Uh, And it's commonly referred to as the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. Again, the wisdom of God would say, good and right in the eyes of the Lord, submitting to his idea of what's good. Wisdom of man would say, don't need God. I wanna redefine it. I wanna live according to my own standards. And so we're gonna watch that tension play itself out. You'll see it in chapter three. Chapter three starts, who is wise and understanding among you? It talks about the wisdom that comes down from above. It's peaceable, it's pure. But the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of man is satanic, it's demonic. So we gotta do something with this. Again, how, like how does God work? And so we'll pick it up this morning. Our, our text is going to be James 1. We'll look at verses 1 through 4, and then we'll look at 12 through 15. And, and I'll try to encapsulate what's happening in all of chapter 1. But here's a little context. James is writing to a Jewish audience, okay? He's writing to a Jewish audience, and the Jews who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus are in danger of resorting back to a pharisaical way of living. And that pharisaical way of living is actually what we've been talking about this whole time. That the Pharisees would say, if I follow the law, if I do the law, which they had dumbed the law down so that they could try to keep it, and they would say, if I follow the law, then I'm blessed. Then God will bless me. He'll bless me here, he'll bless me now, he'll give me what I want if I follow the law. And so James is gonna combat this. That's really the narrative throughout the whole book. He's writing to persecuted Jewish believers in Christ Jesus that have abandoned that way of living. And he's saying, don't go back to that. Yet they're being persecuted. <clears throat> and so here's what he writes, starting in chapter one, verse two. He says, my brethren. Now, catch that. Over 20 times in the book of James, he's gonna use that phrase, my brethren. He is talking to believers here. And so we have to keep that context throughout because you're gonna see this morning that ultimately there's a way of living that leads to a dead and useless faith. And you'll, you'll see the word dead and you'll think, they're not believers. He must just be talking to non-believers there. But he's talking to believers. He uses my brethren, my brethren. Chapter two starts with, don't hold the faith of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. They have faith in Jesus Christ. And so he starts, he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We pick it up in verse 12. It says, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. And so this is what we see. We see James outlining the way in which God works and how it's counter-opposed to the way that we think God works and the way our world, culture, and system is set up to work. Here's the truth this morning for us all. I think you would all agree with me in saying that you've either walked through a difficult season of life, you can sense a difficult season on the horizon, or you're currently in a difficult season. I think that's universally true for everyone. 
I've never met a person that said, nope, never experienced any affliction, never experienced any pain, never experienced a trial of any kind. That's just, that's not true. It's true for all of us. And so if it's true for all of us, then what are we to do with that? Because we're quick, again, we're quick in our evangelical culture to say Jesus is the magic genie in a bottle. And so I know that life circumstances are bad, but by placing my faith in him, he's gonna make all my problems go away. And again, maybe overtly you wouldn't say that, but sometimes that creeps in to our way of thinking, does it not? And we'll see that this morning, that that way of thinking ultimately leads to a useless faith. And so the question becomes, again, how, like, is God doing something? Is he, is he working? How, how, how does he work? Does he use these trials and these temptations? And the question then is, does he test? Does he try us? Because the word here, uh, when, when you fall into various trials, and then you see in verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, those are the same word, the same word in the Greek language. And so I think we have to do some clarification this morning because God certainly doesn't tempt us to do evil but God absolutely tests us. And, and, and again, you're, you're, you're missing it this morning if you think that God does not test us. He tested Abram in the Old Testament. He tested Philip in John chapter six, and he tests us today. And so this is the way God works. All cards on the table. He works through the trials and the temptations and the struggles of life. And sometimes we're so quick to change our way of thinking about who God is that we miss what he's trying to do in the midst of it. So he is using it, but how is he using it? And ultimately, what are we to do about it? And so I think for us this morning, maybe you've heard this phrase before, but our response to the way God works is our responsibility. The way that we respond, knowing, again, it's set in stone. He, he uses the trials, he uses the difficulties, he uses the, your circumstances. So knowing that, then how are we gonna respond when those moments in life Come. I think there's two responses, and you'll see it in chapter one. One leads to death, right? Sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, leads to death. But one way leads to the crown of life, both described in James chapter one. So let's look at this first way of responding that leads ultimately to death. Again, this is verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Each one's tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed when desire has conceived. It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And again, I, I want to dispel one myth. Maybe, maybe you've heard this before, that James is just it's the New Testament Proverbs. And so, like, there's just a bunch of these pithy statements that we'll use from time to time. I, I think James is a unified letter meant to address a specific problem. And so we're like, we have to make sure that we keep all of these things in context together so that we know exactly what James is doing. It can certainly apply to our life. But we wanna make sure that we're applying it appropriately. And so our, our, our first response, usually, if you're honest with yourself, is a response that when it's fully grown, it's gonna to lead to a useless faith, a, faith, a, a dead faith. And I, th I think we respond two ways. The first is this, we think that God is judging us we think that God is judging us. And so again, that, that theological perspective is going to creep into our lives, right? And it's just a natural disposition that gets brought up within us. And so then the moment of trial hits, an affliction in your life comes and your response is, man, what did I do wrong? Man, I must have done something wrong. And listen to me this morning, God, like God disciplines us. He certainly does. 
So if you're walking in unrepentant sin and you're thinking that the, the discipline of the Lord isn't gonna be upon you as a believer in Christ Jesus, then that's a, that's a message for another time. But, but we're quick as Christians to think, man, God, like, I must not have done enough. I must be doing something wrong. And we'll place that judgment on ourselves, or we'll place it on someone else. But see, that, that's the reason they got the diagnosis. It's because they weren't in church last week. See, that, that's the reason that they have a rebellious child. It's because they don't read their Bible enough. I, I, do you see how, like, like that's, that's demonic. Because it's not the way the Lord, he works through the trials and the temptations of life. But our response is our responsibility. If we respond in this way, it's going to lead ultimately to a useless faith. Again, notice what he says. This is later in James chapter 1, verse 19. This is a verse we, I think, are all familiar with. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Let me be slow to speak. We're quick to speak, aren't we? Hey, God's judging me. He's condemning me. He's judging them. He's condemning them, James says. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This was, this was the situation of Job. If you know the story of Job in the Old Testament, this is exactly where he finds himself. And James is going to use Job as an illustration in chapter 5 of James. We'll get to that later. But if you remember the story of Job, what happens is Job has it all taken away. Like everything in his life. And what's the response of Job's friends? Man, you must have done something wrong, Job. Curse God and die for crying out loud. Like what'd you do? And so the story of Job is a, a great indication of where James is headed. It's dangerous. So is that your response when the, when the trial and the difficulty of life hits? Instead of allowing the Lord to use it in your life, you're quick to just think you're condemned. I'm being judged. Or he must be judging someone else. Or here's the other response. We get mad at God. We get mad at him. And, and notice how it's still tied to the root of where we started in thinking that my faith is working by the things that I just do in my life. And so you get mad at God. And what's your justification for being mad? Lord, did I not serve you? Did I not do all these things? And this is the lot that I'm gonna be given? This is the circumstance that I'm gonna walk through? After everything I did for you, after all the boxes that I've checked in life, and now this is gonna hit? It's just as dangerous. But again, notice James 1.19, be slow to speak and slow to wrath, right? Your, your anger in the situation doesn't produce the righteousness of God. And so our response is ultimately our responsibility. And so like, like what is God doing in the midst of this then? Like if he doesn't tempt us, but, but we know he tests us, and if the words are the same, then how do we make sense of this? Like what's going on in chapter one? Here, here's what I think is happening. So the temptation, the trial, the difficult circumstance hits in your life. And what happens is he, he doesn't tempt you to do evil, but a situation is placed before you and it exposes what is inherently within you. You think God doesn't know your heart? You think God doesn't know your nature and know your character and know your natural tendencies? The question becomes, do we? And so then a moment hits in life and it exposes what's within us, what's truly within us. It's not for him to know, it's for you to know. But then the question becomes, what are you gonna do having been put through that difficult situation? And so again, I think our first response, like we'll be quick to think God is judging us. 
or we'll be quick to get angry with God and thinking that he owes us something. But, but again, like, so, so the question is, how, like, how does God work? And if we're starting to get a sense, a sense of how he works, then, then the question becomes, is this how all gods work? Because see how it's like the culture that we live in, the, the gods of our world do work this way. That, that they are transactional, input to output. If I give, then I'll get. It, it even happens sometimes, right? Like, and I hate, it, I hate it that it's this way, but it, it happens sometimes with nonprofit giving, right? It's like, hey, I'm gonna give. What, I, want, I want that tax write-off. And that's, that's just inherently the way we're wired. Is that I'm, I'm giving to get something. And so if we're not careful, again, this bleeds into our relationship with the Lord, and we start thinking he owes us something when he certainly owes us nothing. The gospel, his grace and his mercy, listen to me this morning, his grace and his mercy are one way at his expense for your benefit. There's nothing you could do to earn it. And so he's impartial with it. He's not bound by partiality. And if that theology were true, it would be easy to see who's the most spiritual because they would be the most, quote, unquote, blessed, right? Man, they must really be serving God. They must really be in high favor with him because they have some really cool stuff. That's never been the way that he works. He's impartial. His nature and his character, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's loving kindness, abounding in steadfast love, but by no means leaving sin unpunished. That's how he reveals himself in the book of Exodus. And so again, you see how it's dangerous? And so this morning, I just want to dispel the myth of thinking that it's just by me doing stuff. That's how I know my faith is working, just by me doing stuff. Because when that breaks down, what's your response? Ah, I must not have done enough. Or God, why, after everything I've done for you? And so maybe you found yourself in that position. I don't know. Maybe the trials of life have hit. You're walking through a difficult season. And in the back of your mind, again, you would never say it overtly, but in the back of your mind, you really believe that God is condemning you, he's judging you, or you've done something to offend him or wrong him. Now listen, we do on a daily basis. And his grace and his mercy are available. Again, don't hear me wrong this morning that unchecked sin won't go unpunished. But again, in just considering, how how does God work? Is he transactional? And he's never been. He's not bound by anything you do. He's utterly separate. And so this is the way that ultimately leads to a useless faith. Sin, when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. And so the opposite is the crown of life that's talked about in James chapter 1. And so again, our response to the way God works is ultimately our responsibility. And so again, back in verse two, here's what James says. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall in to various trials. He says, count it or consider it joy when you fall into various trials. I, I don't wanna mitigate what you may be going through in life. And, and again, don't, don't hear me wrong this morning that when, when difficulty arises in your life, that you're just to conjure up some made-up emotion and walk in and pretend like everything's okay. He says, consider it, count it. And we're familiar with this language. Anybody who's had anything done at their house or, or needed anything done for them and somebody comes over, and they may not get it done that day, but what's the phrase they'll use? Consider it done. And so like, what does that do for you? It changes your perspective and it changes your mentality because you know that this is as good as finished. Whatever it is that you need done is as good as done. And the Lord's the same way. He says, consider it joy. It may not be joyous in the moment, but you have to know ultimately what it's producing. And he says, consider it joy 
when you face trials, knowing. Again, he says, know it. And, and this is the knowledge, again, this is the knowledge that I think surpasses knowledge. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 3, that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? Well, you experience it. And so as you walk through the difficult circumstances of life, you can reflect on the way in which he's been faithful before, and you can trust his proven character that he'll be faithful again. It's producing something within you. And so then we have to ask ourselves, what is it producing? Well, James says it's producing patience. Because the testing of your faith produces patience. Now, I'm, I'm no uh, wizard, but I would venture to guess that not many in here would say, like, man, I'm just crushing it in the patience game. Maybe you are, and, and we should talk afterwards, because I'm certainly not. And so if, if it's creating this within you, again, back to what we talked about, when the trial hits, I, I think what's happening is it's exposing what's underneath the surface, what's inherently within you. And, and I heard someone uh, sharing this week, and, and man, this just, again, I think this speaks to the evangelical culture that we live in, because um, I heard somebody talking uh, it, was a, it was a large church, and I heard somebody talking about just pressure. And I came across this, and I thought, man, let me, I, like, I'm curious to know like, how this person addresses the pressures of life. And so uh, he's talking about pressures, and, and he, he gets into it. He's like, listen, let me tell you something. Like, the pressures of life are meant to expose the, and refine the diamond that's within you. And, and, and it's cutting away all the bad things to expose what's great within you that just needs to be unlocked. And so when you experience the pressure of life and know that there's an unlocking of something good within you, and I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, man, that is so backwards from the way the gospel works. Like that's so backwards. Because what I've experienced is that when the pressure of life hits, I realize the lack of patience that exists. And when I realize the lack of patience that exists, it exposes the hope that I have in everything else except the mercy and grace of God. And it reveals his nature, and it reveals his character to me, and then I rely on it. I don't rely on myself. I can't do it myself. Apart from him, I'm nothing. And so, like, like, do you see how this is, it's working? And again, I want you to track that language, because that's what we're talking about. Is my faith working? What is it producing? Like, like it's, not, it's not producing things. It's not just the stuff that I do. But in the moment that it hits, am I experiencing patience? Am I exhibiting patience? It's interesting to me that, that as we think about um, fruit, right, the, the production of our faith, as, as I look at it in the New Testament, like you can go to Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, those are character qualities. Like it doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is Bible reading and church attendance and fasting. And like, again, don't hear me wrong, those are great things. But what's behind those things? It's a changed nature. It's a changed character. And so that's what the Lord's doing. He's so gracious and merciful to do, is expose what's inherently within me so that I can then rely on him for the things that I, that I don't have. And so an, another passage that I think parallels this is Romans chapter 5. And if you know Romans 5, you, you know how Paul really addresses the same thing. And he says, we glory in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we glory in his return. Why? Well, because we know that our present circumstances will all be made right. And all the things that are wrong within me will be made right that day. I think, I think I've said it here before, uh, but like around here, we are certainly health and wealth theologians. We're just health and wealth theologians in the next life, not this life. And so like, like we have to realize that this morning, that again, we're, we're naive to think that the difficulties of life aren't coming for us. They, they certainly are. 
but we glory in the hope that one day he's going to make all right. But then Paul doesn't stop there, and he says we also glory in the things that produce hope. And so we, we, we have hope in what's to come, but we have hope now because of what produces hope. Well, what produces hope? Well, it's the trials and it's the tribulations of life. God has a way of removing your hope in every other thing except hope in him. And so again, this morning, I, I don't want you to get it confused in thinking that, uh, that I'm, I'm passing on your circumstance. I, I know life is difficult. I know that the circumstance is challenging. But the truth is that you can have hope and glory in our Savior, not necessarily your circumstance. Because he, he not only has been gracious and merciful to promise us an end to it, and one day that end may be in eternity, but he's also promised to be with us in the midst of it. And he'll see you through it. And again, it may not be in this life, but his presence should be enough for us this morning. So again, I want us to go back to the question, like how, how does God work? What's he doing? Well, I hope you see it now that what he's doing, the way he works is he defines what's good and right. It's his standard, it's not ours. We don't get to determine it. And that's a good thing. Because if you and I got to determine it, we'd make a mess of it. We do make a mess of it. And so he's defining what's good and right in the eyes of the Lord. And then he uses the trials and the tribulations of life to refine us. He is refining us, but he's refining us in a way that exposes what's within us. And so that leads us to this place where our response is ultimately our responsibility. How are we to respond to it? Are we going to get angry with him? Are we going to miss the point of what we're walking through? Are we going to submit to, surrender to what it is that he's doing and allow him to do a work in and through us? I, I think there's a couple of ways we can apply this this morning. I hope this makes sense. But again, we have to get to a place where we say, what are we to do with it? And, and we skipped over it, and so I want to go back to verse 5, because here's what James says. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You see where we started this morning? That There's the wisdom of God, there's the wisdom of man, and we're quick to exchange the wisdom of God for the wisdom of man. And in verse 2, right, that's section two through four. He says that ultimately what's happening is the trial is producing patience. The patience has a perfect work. It's a perfected faith. And so James says, this man lacks nothing. As your faith is perfected, you lack nothing. And then he counters that in verse five. So if any lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And so maybe that's your first step this morning. You'd say, yeah, I have no clue how God works. I've always thought he's been transactional. I've always thought this is the way he works, that if I, if, I, if I give enough, if I serve enough, if I read enough, if I attend enough, then he'll give me good things in my life. I would just have you repent and submit that before him this morning and say, Lord, would you give me wisdom? Give me eyes to see the way you see things. Give me ears to hear the way you hear things. Give me a heart that's in tune with your heart that I would recognize what's good and right in your eyes. The great news this morning is that he's impartial with the trials and tribulations. Again, universally true, I think we're all going to experience him. He's impartial with him. And James also says he's impartial with wisdom. And so if you'll ask, he says, without doubting, he'll give to you. He'll give you wisdom. So it's, it's one application this morning. Or maybe you would say, got it, yep, I know that's the way he works. I've always known that's the way he works. And so here would be my encouragement to you, that whether you're walking through it 
or whether you do walk through it in the future, I would give you three action steps. Endure. Endure. Like we, like we have to have a right definition of blessing because, again, if we're not careful, we'll, we'll, we'll misalign blessing with just stuff. And James says in chapter 1, and we'll see in chapter 5, he doesn't say blessed is the man who has a lot of stuff. He says blessed is the man who endures. Who endures. So would you just endure? And, and would, you, would you experience the patience that he wants to bring within you, knowing that the testing of your faith is producing it? But you have to know that. Right? You can't just think, you have to know it. And so when it happens, endure and know and then let patience have its perfect work in your life. Let it run its course. Again, I, I think so often, we're so quick, we are so quick to pray out of circumstances that I think God wants to use in our lives. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for God to rid you of the thing that may be paining you right now. But I've just found it to be true in my own life that as I align myself with God, as I, as I don't redefine what's good and right in his eyes, sometimes he wants to do something in what I'm going through. And so that, that word, hupamino, to endure, to remain under, is what it means. To remain under what's happening and to endure well. And as I'm enduring, I, I know, I know that this is producing something. And so I can have joy in knowing what it's producing. And I can enjoy the process of him refining and exposing things that are inherently bad within me. That I want to be made more Christ-like. So that'll be my challenge to you this morning. Do you, have, do you have the wisdom that knows how God works? If not, ask for it, and he'll give it to you. And if you know it, then know full well that when the moment comes in your life, endure, know, and let patience run its course. Let patience have its perfect work. I'm gonna invite the team up. Here's where I want us to close uh, this morning. I think sometimes we, we get it confused as well in thinking that, <clears throat> that Christ knows nothing of what we're going through. And so if you're, you're not a believer this morning, you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then maybe make, this makes no sense to you. Anyway, so why are these people talking about trials and tribulations and struggles and difficulties? Like, like what's the purpose in all this? And, and this is nothing that our Savior himself didn't walk through. And I, I love the way Hebrews puts it for us. When he says he's well acquainted with the grief that we experience in life. 4.15, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weakness, but in all points was tempted. You see it? He was tempted. He was tried as we are, yet was without sin. And this Savior, this Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him did what? He endured. He endured the cross, despising the shame and the rejection. His blood was poured out on Calvary. This man, this man Jesus Christ, experienced and walked through the difficulties that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis. And he was utterly apart from sin. And he knew for the joy that was set before him, he said, I'm gonna endure. I'm gonna endure the physical pain of dying for you and for me. And so it really makes no sense to me why we think we would be any different. 
Right, this, this whole idea of like, come to Jesus and get your problems fixed, that never worked out for Paul. Paul. Paul's life was great before Christ and he came to Christ and then his life was an absolute mess, but he knew something of the glory of Christ coming and he placed his faith in the one who was ultimately perfecting it. Why? Because he's the author and he's the perfecter of our faith. And so how are you gonna respond this morning? It's my challenge to you. Would you know how he works? He defines good and right. It's for him to do, not us to do. He's working through the trials and the temptations of life. And he's doing something in the midst. So would you ask for wisdom? Or maybe your response this morning is just to endure. Lord, give me the strength to endure, to endure well. And to know you're doing something. And then I wanna let patience have its perfect work. Let me pray, maybe pray this prayer this morning. I, I found it to be a dangerous prayer in my life but one that I wanna be open to. And that's, Lord, would you perfect my faith? Lord, would you perfect my faith? I wanna look more like your son, Jesus Christ. And so whatever has to happen for you to perfect my faith, may it come and I'll know full well that you're with me in the midst of it. How does he work? He's a good God and he's using the difficulties in life. Our response is ultimately our responsibility. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, thanks for our time and, and thank you for this word. Lord, thank you for the book of James and how it, it really just speaks truth to us today in a day and age and in a culture where, where people don't have hope as they go through difficulties in life, not knowing where to place their hope. And so we're starving. Lord, and so we wind up grasping for resources. I, I think this is why we, just, we consume so much. And we so easily miss the point you're trying to do something in the midst of it as the author and the perfecter of our faith. Lord, would you do just that? Perfect our faith. I pray for those who don't have faith in your son, Jesus Christ, this morning. Pray they'd place their faith and hope in you. And Lord, it, it may, not, may not take away the difficulties in life, but it can make sense of them. So I pray that our response would ultimately be our responsibility and we would take that seriously and that we could go to a lost and dying world as a testimony of your faithfulness and your goodness in spite of what may seem to be broken and lost, that you're redeeming and restoring all things, and one day we'll be with you forever. And so we pray the prayer of the Apostle Paul, Maranatha, would you come quickly, Lord Jesus, and would we long for that day, but perfect our faith in the meantime. We love you and pray in